Horns, synths, kettle drums, that can only mean one thing. Another week this week in government enforcement. Again, I'm Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by Tom Firestone. We've got a special guest here today, uh, a partner of ours, Chrissy Kattenstein, who is going to talk to us. I'm going to have an exchange with Tom about the Governor Cuomo matter that is um, changing and developing literally by the nanosecond. So um, by the time this hits the press, there will probably be some supplemental material out there. But nevertheless, we figured we would talk about it as it sits here right now. Um, I'm going to then talk about the Polynix LLC case, uh, a, a little bit of a real short, interesting um, crypto exchange case that uh, that I think will help explain why crypto is set up the way it is and why you could buy certain things and not other things on whatever apps that you use. And then I'm also going to talk about the uh, uh, last week's Ernst & Young uh, uh, and, and others, Auditor Independence Settlement. And then Tom is going to bring us home talking about uh, the new Belarus sanctions. So without further ado, uh, Tom, Chrissy, over to you. And by the way, Chrissy, welcome to the firm and welcome this week in government enforcement. Thank you. Great. Glad to be here today. Thanks a lot, Chrissy. Thanks for joining us. Just so our audience knows, Chrissy is a very experienced employment lawyer based um, in our New York office who has litigated a number of matters involving claims of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, racial discrimination, and other related matters. So we thought she'd be a perfect person to shed light on the Governor Cuomo case. Now, of course, the case really heated up last week with the report by Attorney General Letitia James, which found um, the allegations made by 11 women against Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment to be substantiated. It did not, however, make recommendations as to what would happen next, what should happen next in terms of this case. Of course, there's a lot of talk that Governor Cuomo was going to be impeached. Maybe he'll resign. One of his top aides resigned last night. Um, and so we don't know where the case is going politically. We wanted to get Chrissy to on the show to talk about this from a legal perspective and to give context, legal context, all the events we're hearing about in the news. So I guess the first question for you, Chrissy, based on your experience, I mean, you've read the report, leaving aside the politics, where do you think this is likely to go legally? And again, leaving aside maybe the complaint that was filed by the now identified executive assistant, number one, um, with the Albany Sheriff's County, or Albany Sheriff County, Albany Sheriff's, Albany County's County Sheriff's office. I finally got that one right. Um, where do you think it's going in terms of potential civil litigation by the victims identified in the report? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think that there really are a couple directions it could be going in. One is that, you know, there certainly is the possibility of civil litigation. So we'll start with that premise. But the state very well could be thinking about how are we going to resolve this and not have to litigate these claims in early resolution with these 11 women so that it's not finding itself in an even more contentious and public this dispute around these issues. Um, that certainly would take you know, the consent of the women as well, but they're also certainly free to file civil litigation. And um, interestingly, it could be against the state itself as the employer, but also against individual defendants. So Title VII is the, the federal statute that typically applies to these types of claims, and it does not allow for individual liability. 
But because in this particular instance, we have state officials and state actors, there's possibility for a federal claim under 1983. But the New York state human rights law certainly provides for individual liability. So that means that in addition to naming the state, you very likely see the governor himself as a defendant in that case, and possibly those who have also worked for him and could arguably be alleged to have themselves engaged in some sort of wrongful conduct or if they aided and abetted the governor in his wrongful behavior. And you talk about federal law, which is obviously one of the bases for claims, but there's also New York state law. And uh, not yep, being a this area, I understand that Governor Cuomo himself ironically signed into law in 2019 um, amendments to New York state law on this issue, which expanded the opportunities for, uh, expanded the scope of potential liability for sexual harassment claims, actually made it easier to bring suits. And he may now be justifiably hoisted by his own petard, this law, which he signed into law with great fanfare and made a lot of speeches about the importance of combating sexual harassment at the same time, which if one accepts these allegations, he was actually committing these violations. So just tell us, what are the main provisions of the 2019 law um, and how might they play out in this particular case? Yeah, absolutely. So before 2019, New York state law very closely followed federal law. And what that means is the standard for proving a hostile work environment, which is really what the state report suggests would be the claim in this case. There's separately quid pro quo, which is usually something like a promotion in exchange for some sort of sexual um, behavior. So setting aside those types of claims, it really is, looks to be a hostile work environment claim. And pre prior to 2019, the standard was that you had to prove that the conduct was severe or pervasive. And the courts would look at a whole host of factors in making the determination of, is this sufficiently severe or pervasive? But the way that it came out in the case law is that it was actually quite a high legal standard. So we see plenty of cases where you look at the facts and you think that's pretty egregious and a court would be ruling on summary judgment that it doesn't rise to that level of being severe and pervasive. And what the 2019 amendment did with respect to that type of harassment claim is it said that's no longer the standard. The standard is, are you being treated less well on account of your gender? And so we're going from something that's quite high of severe and pervasive to just anything that's less well, um, with the, the caveat that it can't be a you know petty slight or a trivial inconvenience, but it still is a substantially lower standard and has been interpreted as such. The other thing that the, the amendments did is that there has traditionally been a defense for employers where if you made good faith efforts to prevent this type of behavior and the employee didn't take advantage, employer could assert that as a defense. Under New York state law now, they say that's no longer a defense. So in addition to lowering the state, the governor also got rid of some of the defenses that have previously been available for these types of claims. So it really does, for, for a plaintiff, make it a little bit easier to prove. Now, the governor's tried to defend himself on a number of grounds. I mean, his lawyers have come out and they issued, a, I guess they did a video presentation at the end of last week, trying to pick apart executive assistant one story, looking at the timeline. She wasn't there when she claimed she was there, you know, sort of from a criminal defense angle, um, calling into question the credibility of the allegations. But then there's the broader defense, which he has offered, which is, you know, he put out this famous video showing him kissing and hugging lots of people. And, oh, I, this is the way I am. This is my nature. I'm a warm friendly guy, hug people, I kiss people all the time. In fact, a lot of politicians do this. And so, you know, maybe people took this the wrong way, but I wasn't intending to 
um, harass anyone, certainly. And in a criminal case, intent is the key issue. How about in civil litigation? Is innocent intent a defense in a sexual harassment claim? If you do something that is objectively offensive, that subjectively is taken as offensive by the individual, um, is that, but you had innocent intent, is that ever a defense? It really doesn't factor in, in the employment setting. So if you did not intend to offend anybody, if you were not intending to sexually harass, but in fact, your behavior constitutes, you know, under the New York state standard, treating somebody less well on account of their gender, it really is irrelevant to the analysis. And a court would say, you know, you, you engaged in conduct that violates the law, um, irrespective of how you intended that conduct to come across. So we've got this report. It's done by extremely good lawyers, one of the leading employment firms in New York and one of the leading corporate firms. Um, the team was led by a former acting U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. It's extremely detailed. It's extremely thorough. There are 11 alleg allegations by 11 women, all of which were found to be um, credible, all of which to some extent corroborate each other. And you've defined, um, described a relatively low legal standard. I mean, it seems like this is going to be a slam dunk case. What kind of challenges do you think the plaintiffs may have and what defenses defenses may the governor and the state have? Yeah, I think the New York state claims will be very hard to defend. You have a report that is essentially corroborating the stories of many women and behavior that the state itself has determined does not objectively, um, you know, meet professional standards and is on account of the gender of these women. There's potential for there to be defenses as to the federal claims. Um, primarily, the first would be that this conduct for some of the women, there's others, I think there's varying strengths to the, each of the 11 women's cases, but that it's not reaching that severe and pervasive standard. The, the standard is um, is quite high in some of these women, the allegations don't meet that. And then there would still be potential for that of we, the employer tried in good faith to prevent, prevent this type of conduct and the women failed to take advantage. That's just as to the federal claim though, again. So you, I, I think those would be the primary defenses. It is important though, because under federal law, there's punitive damages for employers who violate Title VII. New York state law, punitive damages exist only for private employers. So the state doesn't have exposure for punitive damages under state law. So I, I think there is some benefit to still defeating that federal claim, but it's gonna be very hard on the state claim. And one of the most interesting aspects of the report were the allegations of attempted retaliation, attempts to discredit one of the accusers, Ms. Boylan, by leaking her personnel file to the media, preparing this op-ed, which was designed to discredit her. Um, this has already claimed some casualties on the governor's side. Uh, Mr. Rosa resigned, I think, largely over this last night. One of uh, his advisors, um, Roberta Kaplan, a very well-known um, plaintiff's uh, lawyer also resigned from a position she held in a nonprofit board, apparently in, uh, in relation to these allegations. How serious are those allegations of retaliation? Do you think that that particular claim has legs? And if so, are we going to see civil and potentially criminal charges against others who may have been involved in that effort to discredit the, uh, the complainant? I think we could certainly see an effort to bring a civil claim. The challenge is that for a retaliation claim to be viable, you have to establish you engaged in some sort of protected act, which means you know either 
complaining about content potentially violate the law, participating in an interview, participating in an investigation. So certainly the, the complaining party here did make a point. Um, but, but then there has to be an adverse action under the law that would give rise to a retaliation claim. And I think that's a piece where we could have somebody is after the complaint was made, after there was some effort to disparage the complaining party, was there actually an adverse action with respect to her employment, which usually means was she fired? Was she transferred against her will? Was there some sort of demotion compensation cut? So I think that that's where the debate will likely be. That said, it's certainly possible that we will see not just the state, not just Mr. Cuomo, but also we will see that there are actors who helped in that endeavor being named as defendants in that case as well. The last question I want to ask you is obviously it's better. It should never get to this point. When you're already talking about defense, something has already gone wrong. You spend a lot of your time advising companies on how to prevent these situations from happening in the first place. Um, what are the most important, I mean, there's the obvious, you know, training and clear cut messaging, but beyond that, what are the most important compliance measures that companies can put in place up front to make sure that employees are not victimized um, so that they never wind up in the position of having to defend against these cases? And more importantly, so these are not victimized, most importantly of all. Yeah, I think that one really important piece is having that really strong reporting structure. So having anonymous hotlines, having email, um, anonymous email boxes where you can send concerns, having reporting lines through management. So being sure that employees are comfortable reporting through whatever avenue that they think will be the safest for them, because oftentimes retaliation is, is a big concern. But the other piece of it is that the policy can't just be about, does this rise to the level of legal sexual harassment? It has to be a policy that we don't accept disrespectful behavior. So whether that is something that's sexual harassment, whether it's something that would be racial harassment really isn't the question. It should be, is this the type of behavior that we expect of our And if the answer to that question is no, the policy should say, this is what we expect, you're not in compliance and that there's real consequences. I think so often when we have these types of situations where there's a culture of this type of behavior and then a culture of not reporting it, it's, it's because there's not that sense that employees don't feel like anything's going to happen and they feel like they're going to be retaliated against. So it's making sure that at the top you have the policy and you have the leaders in place who set the tone, because if it's not coming from the top, you're never going to be able to overcome these types of circumstances where it gets brushed aside by those who are the leaders. I know Jerome is thinking exactly the same thing I'm thinking right now. He and I both work in the space of anti-corruption compliance. Everything that you said about preventing sexual harassment in the workplace and discrimination in the workplace is exactly the same in terms of preventing corruption. Tone at the top, good reporting structure, clear messaging, a healthy culture in the company that focuses not just on legal, strict legal compliance. We see this all the time. Oh, well, if we're not traded in the U.S., do we have an FCPA problem? If you've got to that point, that's not good. You want to be fundamental um, values on a day-to-day -day basis are the best defense against problems down the road. When you're talking about legal technicalities, you're already, in some ways, you've already lost the battle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, Chris thank you so much. What is a really fascinating and enlightening uh, discussion, and we're certainly going to want to have you back as 
this story continues to play out because I think it's very important that people understand this, as is often the case with high profile cases. A lot gets distorted or just not reported in the media. Yeah. It's important to understanding what's going on. So we really appreciate it. Um, with that, I'll turn it back to you, Jerome. Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Chris. Well, the rest stuff. of the show, if you're, if you're willing. Yeah, yo, please, please stick around. Please stick around. Oh, absolutely. Yep, and thank you. No, absolutely. So um, I want to talk today about a case that was filed this morning by the SEC, and I wasn't going to talk about it. I already had my thing I was going to talk about, but this case popped. And I've been waiting for a case like this because I think it's just what folks need to kind of understand the 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 the, the retail side of crypto and what they can buy and what they can't buy and why they can buy some things on certain platforms and not buy certain things on other platforms. This case sort of sums it all up. So this morning, the SEC announced that it brought enforcement action against Polymax LLC in connection with a trading platform that met the criteria of an exchange under the uh, Securities Exchange Act of 1934, uh, because the platform provided a non-discretionary means for trade orders to interact and execute through combined use of Polynex's website and order book and the Polynex trading engine. It's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo and words that really come down to, you can pretty much get on your phone, plug into an app, put in your password, buy and sell crypto assets. And there was someone on the other side through a limit or a market order function that you could then swap out uh, swap out your positions with, right? It's what, it's what everyone thinks of when they think they, they buy stock on an app or they buy crypto if you buy crypto on the app. Um, Discouragement of civil penalties of a little more than $10 million were ordered. That's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is sort of what this case really is, right? So what this case is, I, I remember when I, when I downloaded uh, my crypto app on my phone, I wanted to buy a particular crypto asset. I was still a novice. I still am a novice, but I was more of a novice back then. I couldn't find that crypto asset. I couldn't find that particular token. But my buddies own it. And I'm like, why? how do you own it? And I, well, you, you, you have to go through this app or that app. And the securities lawyer in me said, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I dug into it. And, and in what I realized is that there are some platforms that, that are uh, that, that, that sort of operate under an exemption or that are covered under the securities law such that it can it, it is permitted to be a marketplace for the buying and selling of securities. Because again, we know that the SEC has taken the view that a lot of crypto assets are securities. However, um, as a general matter, unless uh, a particular platform is exempt, a, a platform that is stood up for the purpose of people being able to buy and sell securities. In a, in a public fashion is going to be viewed as an exchange. The SEC is gonna view it as an exchange and therefore it has to be registered as an exchange. And that's what happened here in politics. So th this company, um, it, it, it was a, a crypto platform and um, it no doubt um, allowed people to buy and sell crypto assets that were outside of the bounds of security under the Howey test. But what the SEC said is there were some assets that people were able to buy on this platform that were securities. And ipso facto, unless you're exempt, you, you have to register this as a, as a securities exchange. And you didn't. And then the SEC said, and then after you were purchased, there were some additional controls and procedures that were put in place under the new, the new ownership. But you, 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 the exchange, still made a decision um, to allow certain crypto assets that were deemed to be, quote, medium risk of being a security under the Howey test to be sold on this platform. And so the SEC said, hey, look, 
you know, we're, we're going to send a message here, right? I mean, you, you actually have to get it right, right? You, 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 you know, it's like, you know, the best intentions pave the path to hell, right? You have to do the analysis and know, is it a security? Is it a not security? And if it, if it's, it is a security, you better have a really good reason or rationale for why you're selling it on an exchange that is not registered under the securities laws. Uh, one quick thing that the SEC noted is that this platform required um, uh, the uh, uh, asset companies that wanted to have their asset listed on this exchange to get an opinion of counsel stating whether it was in, in a, whether it was a crypto asset in there or a security under the Howey test. And you know, eventually, what the SEC is hinting at is that the business got the better of the legal side and started pushing and wanted to aggressively market assets. And as a result, if you sort of reading between the lines, the resistance to um, listing things that could have been securities became lower and lower. And ultimately they were uh, being uh, listed on an exchange that wasn't registered with the SEC as a national securities exchange. So again, um, a lot of people have come up to me sort of ask me questions. Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that on my Coinbase app? Why can I do it on my Robinhood app? And it's a really good, this is a really good example of why that is. Some firms take a much more black and white view on what they are going to allow to be sold on their platform if they're not registered as a securities exchange. I think some platforms are a little more aggressive, but, but some platforms uh, take a far more strict view on that. Um, second case, and this is this one's super interesting as well, in the matter of Ernst & Young et al. So um, it's an auditor independence case the SEC filed last week against Ernst & Young, three of its audit and tax partners, as well as the chief accounting officer of the unidentified public company um, in connection with Ernst & Young's attempts and ultimately successful attempts to win auditing um, the auditing engagement for this unidentified public company. Uh, it's a reminder for public companies, their audit committees and executives of the need to keep the auditor relationship and the auditor relation, not only audit partners, but the audit firm relationship at arm's length, because this is one thing that the SEC has been pretty aggressive on over the last few years. They brought a number of pretty high profile and fairly aggressive uh, auditor independence cases. And so this is only the, the, the most recent one. So uh, real quickly, what's what, what, what's at issue here and, and why am I uh, why, why am I talking about this? So uh, reg rule 2-02B1 of reg SX, it's a federal securities law, requires that each auditor's report of a public issuer's financial statements uh, needs to state whether the audit was made in accordance with GAAP, including auditing standards uh, under the PCOB and the commission regulations. Where am I going from here? Uh, those, those, uh, those PCOB regulations and SEC regulations um, require that uh, uh, auditors be independent from their clients in both fact and appearance. And so, um, so there's, there, there are two things on auditor independence, right? So the federal securities laws, uh, uh, rule 2.0-02C contains a list of enumerated relationships that per se disqualify an auditor from being deemed uh, uh, independent. But then there's a general rule. And this general uh, rule, this general standard, uh, uh, says that even if the, your conduct doesn't fall within the non-exclusive non prohibitions, you can still be deemed to be non-independent if, quote, uh, an accountant uh, or, quote, uh, uh, a reasonable investor with knowledge of all relevant facts and circumstances would conclude that the accountant is not capable of exercising objective and impartial judgment 
whether an accountant is independent, the commission will consider all relevant facts, including relationships between the accountant and the audit client, and not just those related to filing reports with the commissions. So the, the, and the commission has said in the adopting release, this is sort of the, that objective, reasonable investor standard. And so what do we have here? Um, long story short, and if, if you want to read the complaint or the order, it's actually really fascinating. Um, it, it is kind of a case of bad facts making bad law um, because the, 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 these facts are, are, are pretty extreme. But essentially what the SEC was saying is that um, the chief accounting officer so the audit committee launched a bid, an RFP for auditing services and invited a number of auditing firms to respond, Ernst & Young being one of them. Um, there appears to have been a pre-existing relationship between the CAO and some Ernst & Young partners. Uh, they appear to have been college roommates. And so as a result, um, you can sort of, if you're piecing together the SEC's allegations, um, the, the chief accounting officer shared information with the Ernst & Young partners on the engagement that were looking to win the, win the engagement relating to not only when the, the bid was going to be launched, but ultimately at the end of the day, shared information about its competitors, not only in the first round, but then in the second round, the chief accounting officer actually forwarded the other finalists bid information to Ernst & Young. And then five, roughly five days later, uh, Ernst & Young submitted their own bid. And again, um, these are all facts as alleged. Uh, the, the, the matter was settled. But really what this is intended to sort of do is, isn't, isn't castigate anybody or, or, or cast blame, but it's to show that this is something that the SEC um, is, is taken seriously, right? And, and what it does do also is, is, it, is it, it causes you, if you're in a public company, whether you're in the compliance department, whether you're in the controller function, whether you're on the board, um, the SEC is looking very closely at relationships and not only relationships relating to the audit engagement itself, but overall the relationships. A, a couple of years ago, the SEC brought a case against PwC for selling services related to controls testing. Um, and um, and uh, the, 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 those were uh, classified as audit-related services, and the SEC determined those aren't audit-related services. Those are something completely different. Those are more controls-oriented, something that we think makes you not independent um, a, a, as an auditor, because an auditor, you're supposed to test the controls. You're not supposed to create the controls, right? And so the SEC is taking positions here in auditor independence, that it's not, it's no longer just a technical accounting wonky thing. It's I think lawyers and non-accountants need to be aware of that the SEC is scrutinizing the relationship very closely. Um, quick, quick data point. Last year, in October of 2020, the SEC um, issued some amendments to the auditor independent rules that two um, commissioners who were then in the minority um, took a view that were watering down or weakening the auditor independent standards. And the big issue they had is that, that, that the auditors are the gatekeepers and we can't let them be the arbiters of whether they're independent or not, right? There have to be hard and fast rules and limitations about what is independent and what isn't independent. I'm not gonna get too much into that. But what we do need to know is that now those two dissenters are forming the majority view of the commission, right? So that that minority position has become the minority position um, and will certainly, I think, be carried on in the commission moving forward. Um, uh, and so uh, what, uh, what, what, what are kind of the takeaways here, right? I think the, the takeaways are a few. 
Um, one, um, I don't think the commission is going to be afraid to move full speed ahead into digging into gray areas of water independence. Again, I don't think this case was a gray area, um, but I, I do think that um, a you know, given how everything is now moving to procurement, I think procurement, the procurement function, the, the accounting function, legal function will need to be aware of the rules of the road and, and, and governance structures relating to when information comes in and what back channel communications are, right? Tom, I think of FCPA cases, bid rigging cases. I'm not saying this is bid rigging, but this feels very similar to the types of sort of back channel, back room, just, you know, relationships with this company and somebody in the procurement department or one of the, the key opinion leaders, key decision makers in a hospital, for example. Again, the 2020 dissent is now the prevailing view at the, at the commission. Um, Auditor independence can also raise unwarranted risk for companies, can result in private litigation, can result in SEC enforcement risk for its officers, and it can also result in reputational risk. So again, um, I get that there is, there's economies of scale in using one firm to provide as many services as possible. Um, but sort of the independence of auditors is one thing that the SEC views, frankly, as quite sacrosanct. And if this case is any indication, um, it's something that they will scrutinize uh, more and more. And frankly, they have been scrutinizing anyway. I'm not suggesting now that the, the Gensler Commission is in power, that it's going to be 180 degrees from what the Clayton Commission was. The Clayton Commission brought auditor independence cases, as is the Gensler Commission. But I, I certainly, if I bet dollars to donuts, this would be an area that the SEC um, uh, continues to focus on. So again, we don't really talk about auditor independence cases too much um, because it's sort of a specialized area of the uh, of SEC enforcement, but given the crossover to procurement, and frankly, given the fact that the chief accounting officer of the company was named, so this wasn't just a case against the auditor and its partner. This was a case against the chief uh, accounting officer of a public company for aiding and abetting those auditor independence violations. So the SEC is sending a real message here that this isn't just something that auditors have to worry about. It's also something that the, the public company officers, including certifying officers under Sarbanes-Oxley, need to be aware of as well. And frankly, we will we'll probably need to make sure that communications are kept at a very arm's length when engagement uh, for audit uh, uh, relationships are being talked about, as well as additional services that come close to potentially questioning the auditor independence. Thanks, Jerome. I'm going to finish up with a note on the very brand new, as of two hours ago, Belarus sanctions that were imposed by the Biden administration. We are taping in the afternoon of uh, Monday, August 9th. And not by accident that new sanctions were imposed on Belarus today. For today is the one-year anniversary of the fraudulent rigged election in Belarus that set off the round of protests um, last year. It's also, uh, these sanctions are also coming now um, partly as a result of the fact that one of the leading opposition figures, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, visited um, London, Washington, New York at the end of July. She met with Prime Minister Johnson. She met with President Biden and asked for additional sanctions on Belarus because of the repressions of the Lukashenko regime. Her case was aided, unfortunately, by some events of the last few weeks between the time of her visit and now. First of all, we've seen more evidence of Lukashenko's weaponization of human migration. There's now stronger evidence of Belarusian border guards 
actually facilitating the illegal migration of um, migrants, mostly from the Middle East, into Lithuania and Poland, something that Lukashenko does not deny his regime is doing, simply as a way to make trouble for the regimes of Lithuania and um, Poland. Secondly, last week, we saw the mysterious death of a Russian opposition figure, human rights activist in Ukraine. He had taken refuge in Ukraine, and he was found hanging from a tree in a park last week. The Ukrainian police say this may have been suicide or it may have been murder. Um, I think that the odds-on favorite theory is the murder theory done at the request of with the facilitation of Belarusian um, special forces operating in Ukraine. If so, this would be yet another atrocity by the regime. So, of course, last week we saw the um, incident involving Kristina Timonovskaya, the Belarusian sprinter at the um, Tokyo Olympics, who was told with no notice that she had to run in the 400 meter relay. When she refused to do so, her coach began to threaten her, um, told her she was creating enormous problems for herself and the entire team. Um, she then became clear. She said her grandmother was the one who told her, don't come back to Belarus. You can't believe what they're saying about you on TV here. You're in serious danger. She then very wisely went to the police station in Tokyo and had the Tokyo police escort her to a flight to Austria and then on to Poland where she has been given, um, she has been given refuge. Um, so all of those things came together and we see new sanctions today on the one year anniversary of the fraudulent elections. So briefly, what did the administration authorize? First of all, they authorized the imposition of blocking sanctions on persons, and I'm reading directly from the executive order, on persons operating in certain identified sectors of the Belarus economy, including the defense and related material sector, security sector, energy sector, potassium chloride, i.e. potash sector, potash being one of the major exports for Belarus, tobacco products being another major export from Belarus, construction sector, the transportation sector, and any other sector of the Belarus economy as may be determined by the Secretary of the Treasury in consultation with the Secretary of State. Specifically, some of the sanctions include sanctions on Belaruskali OAO, one of Belarus's largest state-owned enterprises, one of the largest producers of potash, and a source of illicit wealth for the regime. The Belarusian National Olympic Committee, which is accused of facilitating money laundering, sanctions evasion, and the circumvention of visa bans, which the International Olympic Committee has publicly reprimanded for its failure to protect Belarusian athletes from political discrimination and repression, a clear reference to the Timonovskaya situation. Prominent business people who support the Lukashenko regime, as well as 15 companies with which they are affiliated, including Absolute Bank, a private Belarusian bank, and additional entities that operate in the tobacco, construction, energy, and transportation sectors of the Belarus economy. I predict this situation is not going away. It's only going to heat up. Um, the political situation in Eastern Europe is very fraught with danger. Lithuania and Poland, let's not forget, are members of NATO. Belarus is a close ally of the Russian regime. We're looking at potentially a serious political conflict. For legal purpose, I think what this means is we are going to see additional sanctions on Lukashenko as things heat up there. And there may be an extension. There may be an effort on the part of the administration to hold the Russian government responsible for some of his actions. And his actions may lead to additional Russia sanctions as well. At any rate, a very um, dangerous situation in Eastern Europe right now. And wow. there's continued attention. So with that, back to you, Jerome. Tom, awesome stuff. Uh, thank you. Uh, awesome, as informative. 
Um, and Chrissy, thank you as well for joining. Again, very informative. Um, thank you everyone for watching, tuning in. Keep sending your comments. We'd love to get them ideas for future episodes, future topics. Um, with that, I'm going to send us out. Take care, everyone.